Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my long-suffering friends. How are you? Well, it's been a busy few weeks since the last time we chatted, and I truly missed you. I get lonely. I worry. Where have you been? How do we know you're not dead in a ditch somewhere? No, that's, yeah. Today, I'm going to mess with the format again. I managed to write a really funny piece about varmints that Ended up being kind of long, so I'm going to perform that for you. But like I said, it came out at 2,000 plus words, so I'm going to push that after the interview, skip section one, and then use some of this intro here to introduce our guest, Frank Shorter. Yeah, that Frank Shorter. It was one of those interviews where I was hopelessly overwhelmed by content and just did my best to touch on a couple of fun things with him. But the rich tapestry of Frank's life does not fit easily into a 20-minute conversation. So I'm going to fill in some of the blanks here. Frank was born, kind of ironically, in Munich, Germany, where he would eventually return to win the gold medal in 1972 at the Olympics. Uh, His father was a physician in the Army, but Frank grew up in New York, upstate New York, uh, in a troubled home. So he started running to get away from his abusive father, and running gave him that freedom that we all know and love from running. And to get him further away from his father, his mother arranged to have him sent to a prep school in Massachusetts, where he was given some more space to expand his running talents. And as he went through school and college, he went on to run at Yale, for his undergraduate, won a number of NCAA titles. He moved on to Gainesville, Florida to study for his law degree there, all while training and racing at an elite level. And the thing is about Frank, about his journey in the 1970s, was that he popped up at all the running hotspots, all the marathon running hotspots, with all the legends. And he trained for example, down in Gainesville with that famous Florida track club with Jeff Galloway and crew. He was in Oregon with Prefontaine. Frank taught Steve how to ski. (laughs) Frank was with Steve before Steve got killed. And Frank, Frank has won a number of races in the, in the 1970s, the elite 
Fukuoka Marathon in Japan. He was ranked number one, yeah, the number one marathon runner in the USA for five straight years and in the world for three of those. And he won the gold medal at the Munich Olympics in 1972. Now, you may not remember 1972, but this was the Olympics where the world learned about terrorism. A crew of Palestinians broke into Athletes Village and held the Israeli Olympic team hostage, murdering some of them. And Frank was right there. He was sleeping on the balcony when he heard the gunshots. And coming full circle, Frank was right there on Boylston Street in 2013 when the bombs went off, right there. So he won the silver medal in the 1976 Olympic Games, losing to an unknown East German athlete who most likely was a drug cheat because of uh, those times and that organization. And since then, Frank has become instrumental in removing drugs from the Olympics, a battle that still rages to this day. And through all this, he trained himself with an uncanny mixture of speed work and volume, and he managed to stay reasonably healthy and race across 100-plus-mile weeks for a decade straight. And Frank eventually ended up in Boulder, where he was the founder of the iconic Boulder-Boulder race. Yeah, uh, he's just an amazing athlete, a humble, kind, and generous guy, and I'm sure I'll be talking to him again in the future. Heck, he even has an IMDb page, for his roles in several movies. Great guy, full of life, enjoyed meeting him. So what's going on in my world? Well, I'm still training for the Flying Pig in May. My knee is still a mess, but <laughs> I'm enjoying it when I can. I try to get Ollie out, but the weather's just been horrific, especially on the weekends. And I'm at the point in my life where I see less and less merit in unnecessary misery. <laughs> so I try to stay out of that awful weather. And hey, a quick heads up here. Did you see that Steve Runner, Fidipidations, he's podcasting again. Yeah, Fidipidations is back from the dead. And it's not the angry political Steve. It's the old runner Steve. So give it a resubscribe and listen. It's good to hear his rational voice. I did manage to get a couple of great training runs in, even though my knee's kind of buggered. I got a couple out in the woods. We got this cold snap right after a heavy snow. And with all the pandemic traffic in my woods, the trail was packed down, and it was hard. It was great for running. It was like a cement path. <laughs> it really was good. I got out a couple times uh, at night with Ollie, and it was great. I, I remembered some of that joy I used to feel being out alone in the woods with the dog. You know, that cold, crisp air and the packed trail, really good. And I've been getting beaten up fairly rigorously with my new role at work, but I'm liking it. I just focus on, you know, blocking the time, doing the work. I'm at a point in my career where I really don't have to worry about failure, and that frees me up to be uh, to be optimistic, to be creative, to be uh, abundant, we should say. So it makes the work sort of an ecstasy versus a chore, and that's the secret, my friend. Remember that. Remember the gift. On with the show. And now for today's featured interview.
Frank Shorter, thank you very much. It's, it's an honor and a, a privilege. I can't believe we've never talked in all the years I've been doing this. So. I know. I'm always appreciative and flattered when people still want to talk to me. So I've I know. You're a humble guy for everything you've done in your life, you know? I'm a New England prep school guy myself. So I missed you by probably 10 or 15 years, but uh, I was in yeah. the late 70s. I was running cross country for uh, Lawrence Academy. Which, oh, sure. Which you guys weren't in our league for some reason, but a lot of the schools you yeah. raced against. Yeah, Rotten, Middlesex. Yeah. yeah. So um, growing up in New England, that's what you do, right? You get out and you run. We have a great culture for running here. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you introduce yourself because I said you've done so okay. much. I'm curious to how, how you would summarize Hello, my name is Frank Shorter, and I've been uh, running for 64 years now. I'm 74. I started uh, running to and from school when I was about 10. It was a little over two miles, and and uh, I just found it was, uh, even then for me, it was stress relief. And I always enjoyed um, that time out there by myself and the idea of just kind of moving across the ground uh, running and maybe part of it was I was a terrible walker then and I'm a terrible walker now. <laughs> when, when I get hurt and have to walk for a little bit, everybody goes by me. <laughs> yeah, but it just seems my biomechanics were suited to run, and and so um, I didn't really run formally um, until I went away to a prep school called Mount Hermon School in Western Massachusetts. Uh, long story short, went on. Um, to Yale from there, ran there, ran post-collegiately, found out uh, what I was doing for stress relief while I was an undergrad, I actually had gotten very good at. And so uh, I'm just one of those people who started running just like a lot of other um, young kids. And I found out not only did I like it, I was good at it. And and so um, I guess, again, by way of introduction, uh, it Started in my little hometown, running two miles, maybe two school and back, and and it ended up in the podium in in the Munich Olympics, where I won the gold medal uh, in the marathon in 1972. I'm someone, I think, who just wanted to find out how good he or she could be, and I just kept getting better. And so maybe that's the way to introduce it: is that I I just pursued something I loved that was also stress relief and I was good at it and I ended up winning the Olympics. But that also means I think for whatever reason, I had an instinct for training. Um, I was my own coach from the time I was a, a junior in college. And so I think that combination really helped me. Yeah. So that's what I am. I, I think when they say I was, I was uh, born to run, um, Maybe not born to run, but I certainly discovered running at a very important part in my life, and I'm still doing it 64 years later. Yeah, I think I mentioned to you that um, when I got back into the marathon, I got back into the marathon pretty late in life, like 34, 35, and I was hunting around for a training plan. And I think the plan I stumbled on to qualify for Boston was some derivation of your early 70s plan. So yeah. it, was, it was a lot of speed work. Right? Yes. Um, yes. A lot of speed work at the track. And I found that to be a real differentiator, right? Because even then, when I was doing, even then, people say, oh, you're running the marathon. That's a lot of long runs, right? And they huh. leave it at that, right? And you had this great um, approach that allowed you to, to not only cover the distance, but cover, cover its speed, but also to outrace the other 
people in the race. Yeah, I train very um, fast with fast intervals on the track. And I guess the best way to describe it is I trained as if I were a 5,000 meter runner. I trained to run 5,000 meters. And but even then, my best distances were 10,000 meters on up to the marathon. But I just found that doing uh, that kind of speed, speed training suited me. And I think I was also uh, realistic enough to know you can do too much of anything. And fortunately for me, I just decided that running three miles worth of intervals was all you, um, all I wanted to do. I didn't do, want to do things like five interval miles on the track. I, I did everything faster than 65 second pace as a marathon runner. So any interval I ran, uh, if, it was, if it were a mile, and you could only do one of those at altitude, but if it were a mile, I had to run 420. So I would have to run faster than 420 for every interval mile I ran, which limited the number. And so I, I think, again, it worked for me. And I think what it also did, I just found out, and, and any runner should, should try to find out what kind of workouts suit them and um, that they can truly gauge and keep records of and use those kinds of workouts to chart their improvement. And for me, it was doing uh, the same kind of workouts, uh, boringly consistent workouts, uh, so that the next time I ran our six times 800 meters, I could compare a workout to something I'd done six weeks before. And if things were going right, I was doing it not only faster on the fast part, but recovering more quickly on the recovery. And I think for me, it was the right kind of training to be a front runner. Right. to bolt early and much earlier than people expected and then go faster than anyone could finish the race at that pace, but then be able to back off and recover more quickly so right. that I could speed up again. And it meant that all my long running really was done at a relatively easy pace. You know, seven minute miles didn't bother me. Yeah. Um, and, but once a week I would run uh, 20 miles and there, when I was having good days, then I would go hard. So, so every other non-interval day was easy, except for Sunday when I would run 20 miles. But, but what I found is it's super easy, right? If you, especially if you're doing other things, you don't have to think about, oh, I have to do a ladder with a, re-, you know, it's none of that. It's do six of these, then run the next day, right? But the yeah. thing you said is really key there is it allows you in a race to recover while you're at pace. Right. Right. Which yep. if and so the people having to keep up with you may not be able to do that. Right. Yeah. They so can, it, sort of, they can, it sort of raises your threshold. Right. It, it, I hope what it does is raises your anaerobic threshold and you recover more quickly at that race pace that everyone else is running. So you could take off again. And, and so, again, it was just and I think I brought that uh, instinctively to the marathon. Um, and so the first major marathon I won. Um, um, that's what I did. You won, uh, Fukuoka. I can't pronounce it, but you ran, that was sort of the championship of the marathons back then because there weren't any international marathons other than Boston. Yeah, not really. And the other thing was, it was the only time the Eastern Europeans ventured out to the West to run other than in the Olympics. And so it truly, it was the de facto world championships for that year. And, and so, uh, it, it, you know, you didn't, 
it was one of those places just like the Olympics where you don't say, well, you know, I didn't do well because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really holding off for this really more important meet. Well, there weren't, <laughs> there weren't more important races, you know, right. it was Fukuoka every year. And then every four years it was uh, the Olympic games. Yeah. But that being said, in that time period, you guys would race every weekend. I mean, racing 10 yeah. Ks after the week after the Boston marathon, you know? Right. Yeah. But it wasn't a marathon. And, and also what we learned uh, was that you can use those uh, races almost like interval training. Uh, and, and so, and if your mentality is such that you're only going to peak two or three times in a year, like for Boston or an Olympic trials or New York or uh, London now, you know, all the big major marathons, um, I can't see how anyone could try to peak more than twice a year anyway. Yeah. Uh, for a marathon, what you do is you race a lot in between and do a lot of interval training in between. But if you have the right mentality, you don't mind losing. And I think if you really uh, ask a lot of the major racers, they'll tell you more than likely they might even lose more than they win in terms of races. But they, they in a sense, use them as training. Well, they, they, they use them to learn as well, right? To learn right. fitness. Because I right. follow um, Molly Seidel and uh, Sarah Hall, and you'll see them after they do a race, and they'll go, well, that I learned a lot, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because that wasn't a race they were trying to win. They were just, right. they were testing, right? Right. And, and, you know, just how much you have to back off your hard running. You know, yeah. it, it really is not. And, and so, again, and, and those are very good examples of two people that their training regimens aren't the same as mine in the same way the Bill's regimen was not the same as mine. Um, and what I think shows through, they're also not willing to tell you what they do in training because at that level, uh, the best thing that could happen is one of your competitors would try to absolutely duplicate what you do. And only you at that level are really benefiting to the max from that. I hope you see what I mean there. No, yeah, yeah. So it's not cookie cutter, right? I mean, yeah. to some extent you can, but that last, you know, three to 5%, you can't get yeah. that's specific to you. Right? You can be curious about what other people do and kind of say, yeah, that makes sense because then you also can look at that and it helps you as a, a major competitor because you, you get a sense of where they think their strengths are. And you can kind of remember that for competition. And, and so that's the other thing. And then the other uh, piece that I always like to bring out in, in any kind of race, like a track, any kind of race, all the way up through the marathon, is that all the athletes at a certain level internationally know where they are located on what I call a continuum of speed, finishing speed. Right. And we all knew how fast we all were relative to each other in that last 165 on a track. On a track. Yeah. And, and you use that accordingly, too. You have to, you know, train to max out that ability and then also realize that if you're running with someone and they're having a good day and they're faster than you in the last 200 meters, you better be ahead before. <laughs> and it may not need to be much, but you better be ahead. Yeah. And, yeah. and so... Yeah, because again, not everybody has a great day every time, but I always assumed you know, that the other person was going to have a good day. Yeah, and, and at that level, they don't give up, right? It's not no. like they're, they're going to go, oh, he's ahead of me. I'm not going to try to catch him. And, and yeah, so it, um, 
And I think, I hope that's what's showing through with me too. I love that part of the competition. I love the mental part of it. Right. Uh, and and uh, <laughs> one of the things I learned very early was I have several maxims. You know, I've been quoted doing certain, saying certain things. But, but one is never deny a good rumor about yourself <laughs> and what you're doing for training. And he, <laughs> I remember really the best one was 24 quarters and 60 seconds. And that, that sounds like uh, once a runner workout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just saw John Parker. I was just in Gainesville reminiscing. And yeah, and, you were uh, part of that Gainesville scene. It's like you popped up. You were the Boulder guy, the Gainesville guy. You've spent some yeah, time in Boston. Every, yeah. You've been everywhere. Just, you just know everybody. Just, well, I, I like to think I was someone who sort of fit in with whatever group there was, because, you know, I really think I had, had this feeling was if you run with people of your ability or better, you all get better than you. And then the other thing you learn, and I think I hope that's the message I always uh, gave off was, yeah, in training, we work together. I was really the only person that Steve Prefontaine was willing to do intervals on the track with, with whom they, he'd do intervals. Because we, in our first interval workout in 1969, when we were both on the U.S. traveling team, I remember we would, we would go do 5,000 meter workouts and step downs and stuff like that. And we would share the lead instinctively. In other words, you could get done a workout and you knew that you would share the load. And so there was no competition in that sense in the workout. But then when you're competing against each other, you try to beat each other's brains out. Yeah. And then you cross the line, you worn down together and you go off, you wake up the next morning and go train. And, and I, I think I like to think that whether it was, you know, Eugene people where I was sort of an adopted duck and, and Bill Bowerman, you know, he branded me the way he would brand some of the other, uh, his athletes in the, in the, in the sauna. And, and, you know, I just, I was, I was sort of welcome wherever I was, because again, I think I, I didn't, I, I wasn't perceived as a threat. And I think I was perceived as a team player. What are you doing now? Are you retired or what are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of retired. I, I was actually at um, the Hyannis Marathon yesterday. Okay. Um, and I was helping there. I didn't run there, but I, I ran during the the marathon, half marathon, and 10K. And I did the awards because it was, I think, like the third time I'd been out doing anything uh, during COVID, wow. almost in the last two years. And so um, it was just fun. And again, to try to, in, in my own way, support everyone who's, who's building up road racing again. And I wanted to support the race. That's and, the uh, that's the, the spring race is a two-loop race, right? Uh Yes. The two-loop marathon, yeah. The 10K yeah. and a half marathon. And, and so, uh, I can tell you my, uh, my, my Bill Rogers story. I was running that race, right? Yeah. And this, this guy pulls up beside me, and I'm like, I did the, the triple take, right? It's Bill Rogers yeah. running back in the pack with me somewhere, right? I'm trying to right. qualify. And so I found out he was recovering from a broken leg. That's why he was back with me. So Yeah, yeah. He had he tripped and fallen. Funny really as hell, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> funny guy. Oh yeah, that that happened to me once when I I was an injury and I was just jogging through a half marathon in Cleveland and a little kid comes riding up beside me, a high school kid on a bicycle and he looks over at me and he does a double take and he looks at me and and he says, "Are you Frank Shorter?" And my answer was again, <laughs> was instinctively, "Well, I used to be." 
And, <laughs> and, and, and he thought that was funny. He kind of wrote along with me for a while and then we finished. That's again, it's, a, it's all part of the community. And, and again, emerging from COVID. And it was really fun to see the athletes who did show up. You know, the, the, the attendance was down, obviously. The courage that they had to put on the race. It, everybody knew the race director wasn't going to make money. But it was to get things going again. Yeah. And I think that's the wonderful thing about our sport. And we've, you know, you will do things when you're not going to make money. Uh, when we started the Boulder Boulder, it took five years before some of the skeptics on city council in Boulder um, came to the realization that we weren't all cashing in and getting rich on the race. Right. Yeah. Everybody thinks that, right? When you have the local road rights, like, no, nobody's making money here, guys. (laughs) Right. And yeah, people get paid wages, but it's not, you know, people should get some money, but it's, it's a, in a way it's a job like any other job. But the other part of it is it's a job that happens to be a labor of love. And, and so it, it, uh, of course these people do it. (laughs) And, and then, you know, just again, there are certain people when you give them an incredibly complex and large uh, uh, task, a checklist that's sort of beyond nor re, real. Uh, I can't. I can't even describe it. That's a race director. For some reason, <laughs> race directors have this ability to look at a checklist like that, and it's just they love doing it. And you go, okay, you want to. <laughs> it's a better, better you, uh, yeah. you know, but, but again, I find my way to try to contribute to the race. I, I could talk to you all day long and wouldn't even scratch the surface, you know, all this stuff you've done. Um, uh, you were involved in the, the anti-doping stuff recently, you know, yeah. recently being the last 20 years um, yeah. and did some good work there, although we have a long way to go there. Oh, but, yeah. um, what's, you know, if you look back on all this, you look back on all this stuff that you've done, you know, what, what does it look like to you? Is it like kind of overwhelming or? No, it's, it's satisfying because when Steve Prefontaine and I, the night he died, we were sitting in his car before he drove off and Ugh. went away. Uh, we were talking about just that. That was 1975 about opening the sport, the prize money and everything. And it took six more years before we were able to create the trust fund to allow people to individually uh, fund their own trust and then take the money out. And then when they retired, and by the way, I don't think anybody's trust fund was ever audited. I think they were just looking for a solution. We gave it to them. They could put their name on it, take the credit. And, and it opened up all Olympic sports to, to prize money, swimming, you know, the basketball, everything. And so I got, I was involved in that. I, I've been involved in other things. Um, you know, like starting businesses so that athletes could put their name on a business. And I went through the channels and I made the kind of relationships that you needed to be able to do that. And then uh, when it came time uh, in 2018 with the cycling scandal Festina, and uh, there was a chance for Barry McCaffrey, who was Clinton's uh, uh, Office of National Drug policy controller that was the office and the drugs are he um wanted to go over and he did and he told the ioc they were out of the drug testing business so i could be involved in that 
it all stemmed from my wanting to continue to run in a second Olympics and find a way to make a living. The way I put it was ancillary to my sport, not by running in the sport. So I started businesses and, 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 and actually did a deal with Hilton where I did an ad, but uh, TAC, the Federation got, got money, got paid by Hilton Hotels. And then I had a job with Hilton. In other words, I was always looking for ways to do things. And in a way, if you look at it, it was by providing solutions to people who didn't want to solve the problem. And the person I'm going to talk about here is a guy named Olin Castle, who I think un, un, unfairly was held out as sort of this villain. And yet, if you look back, all the work that I did to establish stuff in track and field before U.S. anti-doping was done by cooperating with him. And he was the proponent that got the International Federation to agree to all the stuff that were those goals that Steve and I talked about so many years before. So I hope I'm making sense here. Your point is you look back on it and, and you've been able to move the needle. You've been able to make a difference. And that's sure. satisfying. Because, again, I came from an era where we all cooperated. You know, we all worked together. And like I said, we turned the switch off when we competed. <laughs> no, we turned the switch on when we competed, and then we turned it off in between. And, and so, you know, and again, it was just kind of, my, kind of my nature. And I like the idea of using something like the Olympic marathon gold medal as sort of that thing that got me in the door yeah. uh, so that I could talk to people. And, and in a way, it gave me a certain credibility that maybe I didn't deserve, but, but it, they would be willing to sort of acknowledge that I knew how to work on things. Right, right. And, it, yeah. that, was your, that was your golden ticket, right? Into yeah. the door. Open the door. Yeah. You can't say no to an Olympic gold medalist, right? Yeah. You got to at least talk yeah. to them. And I had yeah. a relative one time, you know, little sayings that people have, and it's 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 a variation on you know I can I can get you the job but I can't help I can't help you keep it uh, it's I guess it's kind of that thing you know it could get me in the door but I had to do something once I got in there yeah all right well it's been a pleasure talking to you I wish I had more time stories about Munich and about oh yeah uh, you know Boston and and all that stuff right I mean okay just... so here's here's the tease next time okay I am I am the only person I think that I can think of who heard the shots in Munich and the bombs in Boston. Yeah. All right. I'm going to let you go. You got anything that you want to uh, leave with people? Yes. That as you get older in your sport and your training, you're going to slow down. And what I did when I was going to slow down, which I discovered actually by when I was winning a race against Rod Dixon in 1982, I thought to myself, God, this is harder than it should be. And I managed to finish ahead of him. And he went on and ran under 209 in New York the next fall. But that was, that was the point where I realized I was slowing down. And I really thought this at that time. And during that race, and right after I said, yeah, but you know, if that happens, my goal now is to slow down as slowly as possible. Realize that it's going to happen. Realize that I have to scale things back. Realize I'm going to have to take a different attitude. But I love this. And, and so as long as I can keep doing it, and I think it, it worked out pretty well because, you know, that's more than half my life I've been slowing down now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the key, right? You got to find a way to still love it, right? And I really think I have. I mean, I, I still, if, if I can't work out in a day, uh, something's missing. 
And yeah, yeah it just, there's, there's a gap. We'll um, talk about that. You know, I'm looking at your, your load between 1970 and 1980. You were working out like two, three hours a day. You know, how does, how does someone organize a life to work out that much? Yeah, I went to law school full time. When and I was went to law school full time. Yeah. For, for three so, years. I'm five minutes late for a call. I got to go. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The Varmint Chronicles. Three o'clock in the morning, the party started. Ollie, the collie, who was with us, was very freaked out, running around in circles and wanting us to get up. He did not like it, did not like it at all. He was all in favor of us packing up and getting the hell out. Right now, the place is haunted. Haunted, I tell you. There was a commotion going on in the attic just above our heads in the master bedroom where the vent is in the peak of the roof. It sounded like someone was moving in. Oh, crap, we've got a critter in the attic. Ah, the joy of vacation homes. What do sensible people do when they own a primary residence that they don't have enough time to take care of? Well, they buy another one so they can have an extra home to not have time to take care of. It's all part of the deranged logic of the woman I married 37 years ago this week, but I do as she says because you can either be happy or be right, and I choose neither. And so, we, and by we I mean she, decided we should go down and visit said extra house on Cape Cod this weekend to see if it was, you know, still standing. And an interesting irony of owning a vacation house is that you seldom do any actual vacationing at it. And by you, I mean me. Once I get there and look around, all the chores that haven't been done for the months since the last time I was there come a-knocking on my psyche like a horde of needy and unwanted school children wanting to be fed. On this week's trip, the first thing we discovered is that we had a fairly robust mouse invasion, which was puzzling at first, because there's no food or water available in the house for them, so why would they come in? And we found the answer in the outside dryer vent, which, to be honest, I probably installed 20 years ago in an amateurish fit of peak and sweat. There was no screen on the outside dryer vent. Apparently, the mice had used it as a highway into the house. A more perceptible human may have noticed that every time we turned on the dryer, over the last couple of years, we may have heard the musical rattle of acorns. But less perceptible human we must be. We didn't notice. And this weekend we did notice. A cursory walk through the basement revealed the workings of an entire mouse civilization. The insulation was filled with acorn bits. Little mouse cafes had sprung up where little mouse waiters served fresh acorn boulebets with a smile, their little berets cocked at an insouciant cant. The exhaust tubing, which is that flexible foil ducting that runs from the back of the dryer down through the floor across the ceiling of the basement and out the side of the house, was densely packed with discarded acorn shells. The midden of many a great and joyous mouse feast. They had eventually breached 
the foil ducting, and carried their movable feast into the house proper, leaving the telltale signs of habitation throughout, all of which had to be cleaned and discarded. The foil ducting in the vent had to be replaced. That entry into the house is now fixed, and they will have to hold their little soirees somewhere less beckoning. As Bobby Burns, whose friends called him Bob the Poet, said, the best laid schemes o mice and men. Gang off the glay. Which you may have heard as the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Thing is, if you're not actually living in a house, it gets taken over by the local wildlife. The animals don't know any better. They just think it's a big square log. They can hide in it. When you're in the house, living and making a ruckus... Can you describe the ruckus, sir? They get scared off. Because there's nothing scarier than an invasion of Homo habitus. Vacation day one, therefore, was spent up to my armpits in rodent tailings and duct tape. Remind me again why we own another house? Eh, we sorted it out. The larger cause for concern was the bandit in the attic. This is not my first rodeo with trash pandas. They have been in the attic of this house before. Like I said, when you're not there, they claim squatter's rights. But first, before we get into the action, let's talk about attic ventilation physics. This old house school is in session. Why, after spending so much time and energy, see what I did there, insulating your house, do you leave ventilation, a.k.a. holes, in the roof of your house. Well, it's all about moisture. If you don't have the ventilation in the roof, it acts like a greenhouse and it traps the moisture in the attic. Some things are better moist, like hot bread, fresh from the oven, and, well, other moist things, but not houses. Houses should not be moist. Without the vents, every time the temperature changed, you'd end up with a moldy house. Our houses especially up here in New England, have large attics built with passive ventilation. Passive meaning there are intake vents called soffit vents, and they run along the eaves on the front and the back where the gutters are mounted. And on the ends of the house, they have these big outflow vents, those large rectangular vents with the louvers that are mounted on the end of the house, high up in the eaves, in the peaks. And I realize... I've just loaded you with a bunch of words you'll never have to use unless you somehow end up on a version of Home Repair Jeopardy. By the way, Jeopardy is an interesting French loan word that is derived from Je Parti, which means basically the end of the party. And to summarize, you have to have vents in the roof if you want your house to stay not moist. Of course, these vents in the house peaks have louvers and screens built into them so the animals can't crawl through, in theory. But raccoons are smart and dexterous vermin. They have figured out that in these unoccupied houses, they can bend the aluminum vent louvers, punch out the screens, and have a new warm place to hang out. Like I said, Rocky and I have done this dance in this house before. Last time, when they punched out the vents on the other side of the house, I nailed up some wire mesh, and that took care of that. Back to the story. It's 3 a.m., and Ranger Ricky is doing the rumba in the attic. So I go up there as part of my vacation activities the next day, 
and nail up some wire mesh over the inside of that vent. Easy peasy, just like last time, problem solved. Except is it? Unfortunately for me, it seems like the raccoon wasn't outside when I did my repairs. Rocket was hiding in the crawl space over the sunroom. I didn't keep him out. I trapped him in. The plot thickens, like adding flour to Irish stew. Now what? Now I have to trap him. So we go buy a have a heart trap and some sardines. I have caught raccoons at my actual house in the have a heart trap before. I usually bait my traps with apples because I'm after woodchucks, but sometimes Rocky gets in there. The recommended bait for trash bandits is stinkier fare. Sardines, boiled eggs, that sort of thing, which makes me realize that they like the same food I do, so maybe we can be friends, hang out together, eat some sardines, watch the hockey. We'd be like bros until he chews my face off and gives me rabies and I turn into a brain-eating zombie. I set the trap in the attic, put the sardine tin in it. I ate most of them, but I left some for Rocky because I'm that kind of guy. For all you animal welfare people, it's not a cruel trap. It's basically a box with a door that closes behind them when they walk over a pressure plate to get to the bait, and then you carry them outside the house to someone else's property and let them go. Which I would never do because it's illegal to transport wild animals in Massachusetts. I would never do that. So the trap is set. Now it's getting late in the weekend. And we have to get back to our real house and our real lives, having enjoyed as much mouse poop, wallowing, and gutter cleaning as possible. We hopefully leave the arm trap and head out for brunch for a couple of hours. Alas, when I come back, there is no critter in the trap. And my wife starts obsessing. What if it's not a raccoon? What if it's a skunk or a squirrel? To which I helpfully add, because I'm a helpful guy, what if it's an escaped monkey from an organ grinder? We'd have to play a tune. He'd dance. We could catch him in his cute little fez hat. She's not amused. One of us, meaning me, is going to have to drive back down during the week and check the trap. <sighs> Wednesday night, Ollie and I make the long drive back down to the Cape. I pull down the squeaky foldable stairs to the attic and no raccoon in the trap. But on further inspection, the sardines have been consumed and the tin is outside the trap, licked clean. But the trap didn't get triggered. Must be a sticky trap. And Rocky didn't even leave a thank you note. But he's still up there. He wakes Ollie and I up at midnight trying to get out through the vent that I have unhelpfully sealed. I rebate the trap with boiled eggs and apples. I pull it closer to the trap door so I can have it close at hand to rebate if I have to. Varmint is usually thought to be an American word. It's actually Latin. Varmint is an American bastardization of the English vermin which is from the Latin vermis, meaning worms or larvae that infest foodstuffs. So I finish work that day and take Ollie for a walk in the park. When we come back, I don't want to get my hopes up, but it sounds like there's activity up where I left the trap. 
Climbing up the stairs, I shine my iPhone flashlight into the dark attic, and yes, indeed, I have the furry rump of the trash panda facing me from the sprung trap. Rocky is not happy. It's understandable. I sealed up his door. I ate most of the sardines, and now I have him in a little metal box. This is the tricky part of Operation Free Rocky. Now I've got a 25-pound angry wild animal in a trap. I put Ollie in his crate. He is happy to oblige. He doesn't think any of this adventure is cool or interesting. The whole thing just makes him anxious. You ever tried to carry an angry, hissing, spitting, 25-pound wild animal down a set of retractable stairs from an attic with a bad knee? Yeah. I put Rocky in the back of my truck. It's now pouring rain. Another excellent reason to have a truck, by the way. And I drive to a dirt road about a mile away across the street. I know you're supposed to put some real distance between you and the critters, but I already sealed up the vent with hardware cloth, so he's not getting back in, even if he can find his way back. So this is the trickiest and most terrifying part of the catch-and-release process. I have to open the trap with my hands and hope Rocky jumps out and runs away. And hope Rocky doesn't turn around and chew my face off and turn me into a rabies-infested brain-eating zombie. It happens. Thank the raccoon gods, Rocky is just as happy to part ways with me as I am to part ways with him. I head home, quite pleased with myself, having avoided a $1,000 critter removal bill, feeling a bit manly, chuffed, you might say. Ollie and I have a wonderful, uninterrupted, full night of sleep. Epilogue. The following night, as I'm lying in bed reading with Ollie, I hear the familiar sounds of Rocky climbing across the roof, trying to bash his way back into the vents again. He can't get in, because I fixed it, but that cheeky bastard found his way back and bashed up the aluminum louvers, just to spite me. To quote a wise man who once said, Now, Somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota, there lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, that's episode 4-474 of the Run Run Live podcast. I still plan to limp through the flying pig, but my knee is not responding as I would hope it would. Uh, as I hoped it would. It is weak, unstable, and painful. Basically, well... Yeah, I want to use a family-unfriendly word here, but let's just say it's not good. So Frank Shorter ran the 1976 Olympic Marathon with a bad knee, came in second. Oi! I have been having a lot of trouble finding the time and the inspiration to write and produce this show. I know it's getting stale, and you deserve better than that. So I'm trying to consider ways to make it less of a lift for me, maybe break the sections up into individual shorter shows that I could drop more frequency, maybe find a theme or play with the multiple short shows from the various themes I cover here. Then you could pick and choose what you wanted to listen to. We'll see how it goes, one step at a time. I'm heading down to Dallas this week, and I just realized it's time change weekend here. Yay! meaning that I am going to have to roll out of bed at 3.30 a.m. body clock time to start a long week with a nice dose of jet lag. 
Heard an interesting comment on a call this week. We were prepping for an executive meeting with one of our customers, meaning, you know, meeting with their executives. And there were two senior executives from my company on this prep call. And they were talking about a big deal that they were trying to close with this customer. And one of the execs said to the other, you need to make it personal. (laughs) And that struck me. After all the professionalism is sorted out, every business transaction is personal. Yeah, I've always tried to avoid that, you know, making business personal. But you can't avoid it. It's personal whether you want it to be or not. But making it personal allows you to leverage empathy, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. How about that for a thing to try this week? Make it personal. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.